0: Pepperidge Farm Milano.
1: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: It's time for another Saturday Classic, where we dig into the back catalog and we reshare an older episode. Uh, And today, that episode is the Emu War. This is one of the topics that we continue to get
2: requests for. And while it's nice to be able to answer those emails with a wish that is already granted when we send the URL of that existing episode, we thought we would spread the news far and wide that, yes, there is an episode about the Emu War. I will also say that we know that in Australia, people say emu as Holly just did. However, in the United States, many people say emu as I just did. Yeah, we got a lot of email about this fact. Uh, when this uh, episode originally came out.
0: Yeah, so just enjoy the birds and don't get too worried about how we pronounce it. We know <laughs> both are acceptable in different places. And this war, and I have to use the air quotes, was an initiative in Australia in the 1930s to control the emu population. There were soldiers and guns and hunting. It was a big adventure, but ultimately it was a really embarrassing affair. So enjoy!
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we have an episode that is right from the suggestion box. Yes. It is indeed. from the Twitter user NT Purvis who asked us if we could please talk about the Emu War of 1932 um that referenced it as one of the most bizarre wildlife management stories i would like to just go ahead and put it out there yes correct that's that's completely accurate um but it's also a story that needs a little bit of context uh
0: it, yeah uh after World War One, there were a lot of soldiers in Australia, both Australian and British, and they moved to rural parts of, of the country as part of a rural settlement effort described as a state scheme, this is in quotes, a state scheme intended to turn swords into plowshares by Murray Johnson in the Journal of Australian Studies.
2: Yeah, so the government purchased about 90,000 hectares of land, uh, and much of it was not actually very good for farmland. There's There's a lot of land in Australia, but a lot of it does not work for, quote, conventional farming very well, and that puts a high demand on the the parts that are going to be the best for farming. So a lot of the soldiers wound up in more of the marginal areas that weren't actually that great for farming. So they were already set up to have some challenges in their farming work.
0: And in particular, in the Campion-Walgoolan district, which is northeast of Perth in Western Australia, the population was largely soldier settlers, uh, many of whom were growing wheat. And about 5,000 of them were trying their hand at agricultural work as part of soldier settlement. Many hedged their bets uh, using their land for mixed farming, like they would try to grow wheat and produce wool at the same time. And when the price of one commodity went down, sometimes they could make up the difference with the other thing that they were working on.
2: Yeah, so in spite of the fact that this a lot of this was not really prime farmland, through the 1920s, things had gone pretty well. They'd had several good seasons in a row, but by the time the 30s rolled around, things started to go south a little bit. They were becoming a little strained. Commodity prices were dropping. Droughts had become really common. There was a lot of pro- uh, a lot of problem with rabbit infestation, and even when things had been better, sometimes there had already been problems with really hard frosts and the rabbits. We will talk about the rabbits again in a future episode yes, because indeed. there's a whole other story there.
0: Uh, and then, of course, the Great Depression happened. Yes. Uh, and the value for many of Australia's goods was really dropping, and the deficit was out of control in a hurry. The Australian government, which was under Prime Minister James Scullin at the time, used the country's wheat farming as an attempt to prevent the financial disaster that was falling upon all of them. Uh, and under the Grow More Wheat campaign, the government had actually promised a price of four shillings per bushel for wheat. The idea was that the government could use wheat to offset the collapsing price of other
2: goods. Right. And people were really tempted by this idea of four shillings a bushel. Uh, getting a guaranteed price for something was great and unexpected. It was a better price than they could really expect other places. But unfortunately... After this deal had been promoted to everyone, the price of, of wheat started collapsing, too. And the price of wheat had already declined just tremendously when the wheat marketing bill, which would have actually gotten the money that had been promised to the farmers, was voted down in the Senate on July 4th, 1930. So people had been expecting that they could grow all this wheat, sell it guaranteed four shillings a bushel, and then the funding essentially fell through when the bill was voted down. It was a hugely important bill, especially in Western Australia, where these particular farmers were living. Uh, It was so important that there were talks of Western Australian secession from the rest of Australia as the debate was going on. Uh, One of the people making this sort of threat was Mr. H. Gregory of West Australia in the House of Representatives, who said that Western Australia was going to have way more difficulty than any other Australian state if the farmers didn't get their money for their wheat.
0: There were other initiatives attempted to try to make good on the promise, either by Australia or by the individual states, but they just could not get off the ground. Uh, Another bill to pay three shillings per bushel was passed, but by then the situation was so dire and the country was having so many fiscal issues that they didn't have the money to actually pay it. It was just words. Right. The, The price of wheat kept
2: falling during the Depression. Uh, The farmers were becoming angrier and angrier and more frustrated because they were waiting for this higher price that the government had promised them while watching the market price fall. So they were losing the ability to cut their losses the longer they waited on the government to pay them. At one point, they got so frustrated that they even stopped uh, loading their grain in an attempt to force the government to pay up. It was sort of effectively the same thing as going on strike. Uh, But that didn't
0: work. And finally, the Wheat Bounty Act was passed on November 25th of 1931. And that paid four and a half pence per bushel on all wheat marketed in 1931 and 1932. And other relief measures did follow.
2: These measures, unfortunately, did not offer that much actual relief. Um, It's a little hard to compare because Australian money was not on the decimal system at the time. Now Australian money is on the dollar Uh, But there are 20 shillings in a pound and 240 pence in a pound. So to drop from four shillings to four and a half pence per bushel is incredible. That's a
0: pretty significant um, tank at that point.
2: So that's the context. You have all of these farmers who have been farming all of this wheat. They're desperate to be able to sell their wheat for something, All the government's efforts to be able to pay them money have pretty much fallen through. They're they're now sort of scraping together this tiny, tiny amount per bushel. This is what's going on when just before the 1932 wheat harvest, the emus came.
0: Uh, So a little bit of background in case you don't know what an emu is,
2: which I found out some people I know who are smart did not. So, so so that's where we're spelling this out. That's surprising because we
0: actually have emus in Georgia. Yeah, there are places. It's apparently a very hospitable environment for them.
2: So it's a large ostrich-like flightless bird that's native to Australia. It's about one and a half meters, which is five feet tall, and forty-five kilograms or a hundred pounds. So a big flightless bird. Uh, some of some species have been exterminated by settlers and are extinct. Extinct. The ones that are left can run really fast. They kick when they're cornered, and they like to eat fruit, insects, and wheat, it turns out. Um, they generally migrate kind of westward, out of drier areas and towards the coast after their breeding season. Uh, rabbit fruit, rabbit-proof fences that are in parts of Australia that were built between 1901 and 1907 keep them away from much of the coast. But it runs sort of north-south. And even though they're migrating westward, they're also going northward. So they're pretty much running the same direction as the fence is going. So there's not a lot of protection offered with this fence. Um, it also turns out that they're wily, which people were not expecting when they concocted this plan.
0: Uh, emus had been protected under the Game Act of 1874, but in 1918, new legislation, which went into effect in 1922, actually listed them as vermin because of their really devastating effect on wheat farms. Yes.
2: So, 1932, 20,000 giant, kicking, running bird vermin descended upon the wheat farms. Uh, it was not good for anyone. Uh, they were making their way through farms around Campion and Walgulin, uh which are east and northeast of Perth, as we said before, uh, causing huge damage to the wheat farms. And some of the soldier settlers were like, we remember a very effective weapon from World War One, and we're going to go ask if we can get help. So they went to Sir George Pierce, who was the Minister of Defense, and said, we would like the military's help with this emu problem. And said, can
0: we have some machine guns, please? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which we laugh, but it's like... Uh... It's just one of those things that seems so extreme. It's almost hard to process. And I want to fight a bird. Let me get some heavy artillery.
2: Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all.
0: you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: But it really was that dire at that point. It was. People were really desperately seeking help at this point. Um, Pierce agreed. That he was going to send some soldiers. There were some conditions, though. Uh, Local defense personnel, not civilians, had to be there to man the machine guns. There had to be a commanding officer present. Uh, The state of Western Australia would have to pay for the troop transport, and the soldier settlers would have to provide the housing and the ammo and the food for the troops. He did all of this without informing the military board.
0: Colonel Hode of the first cavalry division in Sydney had also requested one hundred emu skins with the hope of using feathers for his light horseman's hat. So the troops really like they felt like they had put a plan together that was gonna work. Yes. They thought success was imminent.
2: Yes, and inevitable. They were going to just be able to slaughter emus, retrieve their skins, so everybody would be happy. Uh, Major GPW Meredith was the commander of the 7th Heavy Battery, and he was in charge of this event. Also, to quote Murray Johnson, who we referenced earlier, Sergeant McMurray and Gunner O'Halloran and their equipment, consisting of two Lewis machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition, their task force was also joined by a Fox movie tone cinematographer to record the forthcoming campaign, which suggests that someone in authority, possibly Pierce, saw direct military activity in the wheatlands as useful government propaganda. So uh, we've got the major, the sergeant, the gunner and the movie team coming to Western Australia. They were in Western Australia already, but coming to this part of Western Australia to kill emus and film it.
0: How could this go anyway other than success? Uh, just for context, the Lewis machine gun is a light machine gun. It was invented by uh, U.S. Colonel Isaac Newton Lewis, and it was used extensively by the British Empire in World War One. It has a flat pan magazine on top instead of a belt feed, as you might imagine. You can actually look up YouTube videos of this and see what we're talking about. It's kind of fascinating the way it feeds through. Yeah
2: like a big flat pan of ammunition that sits on top.
0: Yeah, where the the ammo is actually loaded into the pan, almost like the rays of the sun, if you were drawing like a childish drawing of the sun. Yeah. And then you flip it onto the the machine gun and it feeds from that pan, rather than, we've all seen in films, like those long... The belt feed. Yep. But it doesn't work like that. No. Uh, This team arrived
2: in early October.
0: But just after they
2: got there, a rainstorm drove all the emus out of the fields for long enough that they said, OK, this is actually we're not we're not worth waiting around here. We're going to go home. Um, when the emus came back about a month later, Mer- Major Meredith and his team came back as well. And they arrived at the fields near Campion on November 2nd at about the time to- at about the same time as a herd of about 50 emus. Uh, The problem was that the emus were out of range of the machine guns. And some soldiers tried to come and herd the emus toward the guns, which was not all that effective. They finally did manage to strike a few birds as they were fleeing for the cover of nearby trees.
0: And they actually made a base camp on the land of a man named Joseph Joyce. And they did recon on the surrounding farms for emu activity, Uh, They managed to take out about a dozen birds before deciding to change their tactics from seek out and shoot to set ambushes near water sources.
2: Right. The ambush strategy was a little more successful than the seek and shoot strategy, but but not really by much. November 3rd passed without any kind of incident. On November 4th, about a thousand emus came out of the trees and approached the ambush directly. The ambush was set on the walls of a dam. And the machine gunners opened fire and hit a few birds before the machine gun jammed. The settlers who were assisting with this operation opened fire with their rifles. But by that point, the birds were scattering and running for the tree line. They waited for the rest of the day for the birds to come back to this watering hole. When they didn't come back, uh, it, everybody started to get the idea that maybe these emus were a little smarter than they had thought.
0: Yeah, they didn't count on them using the logic of, that thing is dangerous, I will <laughs> stay away from it.
2: Let's not go back there.
0: Uh, and so they moved their operation south, and they tried to mount a Lewis machine gun onto a truck so that they could fire while driving and hit emus that were on the move. But the emus outran them and escaped into the trees, and the gunner found the ride so rough that he really wasn't able to fire the machine gun anyway.
2: Now, elsewhere on the same day, a truck ran down an emu, hit it, ran out of control, and destroyed a long length of fence. So the battle against the emus was not really going very well anywhere that day. By the 8th of November... Major Meredith's Meredith's team had used about a quarter of their ammunition, which was about 2,500 rounds, and with that they had killed 200 emus. Uh, Meredith later called it 300, and the soldier settlers rounded it up to 500, uh, maybe to raise their spirits. They were the ones paying for the ammo. So the idea that such a tiny proportion of ammo was actually killing emus was a little distressing when they were the ones paying for the bullets.
0: And then on November 9th, word actually got to Parliament about what was going on when Parliament Member Harold Thornby actually asked Prime Minister Lyons about the farce that was going on in Western Australia. That same day, the Secretary of Defense sent a telegram ordering the operation to end.
2: Yes, this is an example of we would rather ask for forgiveness than permission did not work out because having not asked for permission, they were ordered to return home. It was not a successful attempt.
0: Well, and it most likely actually made things worse, since the fleeing emus then, not only had they been eating wheat, but now they were trampling crops. Right. So the soldier settlers, though, continued to ask for aid, and Meredith's report spoke of the extensive damage that the emus had done. He also explained, as best as he
2: could, why he had used so much ammo on so few birds, and these are his words it must be realized that an emu full out can do 45 miles an hour. Consequently, the target is, after the first burst, a very rapidly moving one and is only visible for a very short time. Moreover, the emu is an amazingly hard bird to kill outright, and many mortal many carry mortal wounds up to the distance of half a mile on actual observation. Uh, Much later in this campaign, a farmer named A.E. Johnson killed an emu with his truck And that bird had five bullets in his body, which appeared to have been from the first onslaught. So this emu was still alive days after being shot with multiple rounds. Yeah, it
0: had survived and was just carrying around metal while it ran about its business. Yes, uh, People in the government appeared to try to distance themselves from the idea of a second campaign. Uh, and the Minister of Defense finally said that no military personnel could be placed there, but that the state government could have equipment if it found its own qualified operators. So they didn't want to waste man hours, but they were willing to offer them the materials needed to continue trying to fight the emus uh, on their own. But there were no experienced machine gunners in the civil service list. So it was back to Meredith and team who were being lampooned as Major Meredith and his merry men.
2: They came back to the area and launched a second offensive on November 13th. And they used Joseph Joyce's property as their starting point again. They killed about 25 emus on November 13th and about about 20 more the day after. Uh, at about this time, an animal welfare officer was sent to oversee the reports that so many birds were apparently being injured and then continuing to run. It's not likely that he was able to do that much.
0: So he was basically there to try to ensure that the animals weren't suffering, that they right. were being hit and killed and not uh, needlessly carrying on in an inhumane way.
2: Right. That, that, was, that was his role, but it's unlikely that it actually made much of an effect by November 15th, the birds had started to become really cautious of the soldiers' activities, which I think people weren't quite expecting them to learn from experience. Um, they, they would stay out of range of the machine gun. So they were smarter than people
0: thought. Yeah, they like were, they, they were learning range distance. And where was safe and where wasn't. Right. Like they had boundaries in their head of how close they could get. Right. Uh, the team moved around the area as various farmers would report to them that they had seen emus and had crop damage. And by December 2nd, they were pretty consistently killing, uh, by reports, about 100 emus a week. Yeah, that's what they were telling people.
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Max Homa. And I'm Shane Bacon, and we want to tell you about our new podcast called Get a Grip" with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. I'm a PGA Tour champion and a guy that has dreamed his whole life to be on the largest stage, compete in the biggest events, and have a chance at making history in a sport that has been a bit of a roller coaster for me as a professional. I know the only reason you chase this dream of being a pro is you could one day become a crossover media darling. You, too, could be a co-host of a podcast. And that dream is now a reality. Max and I will take you through life on the PGA Tour. And our goal is to allow you in as we both pay our respective rents and bills from this silly sport that we can't help but love. So do us a favor. Download and subscribe to Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon. It's our opportunity to bring to life the conversations we are already having, the rants and tangents we will tackle, and the best and worst parts of being a professional golfer. Way more best parts, bro. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Holman, Shane Bacon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Brigadier Martin recalled Major Meredith on December 10th. In Martin's reports, he gave an estimated 986 birds killed and 9,860 bullets used. That's a suspicious accounting of birds versus bullets. Because it is
0: just multiplying by 10.
2: Yes. There was an ongoing attempt to get the soldier settlers to repay the military for that that ammunition. The... The way that it went down is that the Agricultural Bank reimbursed the military on the soldiers' behalf, and then the bank put off asking the soldiers to repay them until 1933, because they knew times were hard for everybody. Eventually, T.E. Dixon, who was the president of the Wheat Growers Union at Campion, got a demand for 35 pounds. And Daniel O'Leary, who was an executive member of the Walgulin Wheat Growers Union, got a demand for 24 pounds.
0: O'Leary eventually got his payment reduced though to 1 pound 14 shillings. He did not want to pay anything encountered with an accounting of how much money he had spent personally on the effort, including 9 pounds for victualling his majesty's troops, 10 pounds for transport with a further 5 pounds for damage to same, and 900 pounds for the loss of 6000 bushels of wheat valued at 3 shillings per bushel. The whole thing remained suspended, and many sources don't show that anybody ever actually got paid, that no money changed hands for reimbursement.
2: No. Even though this is pretty roundly seen as an unsuccessful attempt to curb the population of emus, Western Australians continued to ask for military help again in 1934, 1938, and 1943. The military turned down the request all three times. The soldier settlers used their own arms to fight the emus instead. Uh, O'Leary, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, in 1943 also mentioned getting an RSPCA letter about uh, their destruction of the emus and how it was cruel. Um, his response was that they were going to defend their crops and they did not need anyone's permission.
0: And after World War II, farmers were actually issued free ammunition for dealing with vermin. Uh, 284,704 emus were known to have been killed by farmers between 1945 and 1960, so in just 15 years' time.
2: Right. So it seems like uh, while the firing of machine guns at herds of emus, not very successful as an attempt to control their population, people have been able to do a little better with a rifle sort of singling out one at a time. Uh, There are still lots and lots of emus... In Australia, uh, Their population now is controlled by a bounty. Uh, there are payments given for between 5,000 and 40,000 birds a year in Western Australia. Even though there are that many being shot, reportedly their population are still pretty healthy. It's sort of like the idea of if, if the bird is really being a pest and it's not negatively affecting their overall population to the point of threatening them to be able to keep them out of farmlands, then... Generally, people seem to be okay with the situation.
0: Yeah, it's always, you know, as a compassionate human being, it's always hard to think about animals being killed. But this is one of those cases where the government is really trying to balance the health of the animal population and the welfare of the human population. And it's tricky. There's no easy answer, really, that's going to make everybody happy. So... That's where they've landed is with um, bounty
2: right So that that one attempt 1932 they fought a battle. they fought a battle and at, at the time things were they were obviously things were hard in the Great Depression. People really took the opportunity to, to lampoon the military and the government when that was going on. It became a source of entertainment for people which uh, people kind of needed then and it, it was it was nice for people to have a, a government target that they could laugh at. When people felt like the government was taking a lot of blame for what was going on uh, in the community at the time. So that's the story of the Emu War. Of the Emu War, the brief and indeed bizarre wildlife management attempt in Western
0: Australia. Hey, since, uh, these episodes that we're sharing are past classics, uh, we have some updated information that will supersede the contact stuff you've heard before. If you want to email us, our email address is historypodcast at housetuffworks.com and you can find us across the spectrum of social media as Mist in History. You can also find us at MistInHistory.com and you can visit our parent company, House of Works, at com.
1: Hey, guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homan, Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete, mostly because of his unreal pop shot abilities, and has, in fact, started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online, Max and myself. Turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grind in and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.
2: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.